Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Rob Kelly, a Rob Kelly PhD. He's a recovery expert uh, with the recovery group. If you're struggling with addiction, then this is the episode that you want to tune into. Uh, Dr. Rob Kelly is joining me now live here on Before You Kill Yourself. How are you doing, Dr. Kelly? Doing good, Leo. Doing good. Looking forward to this show all day. So awesome. I, I love that. You know, I really want to do a deep dive right in. Uh, so I'm so fascinated. And I know you have such a passion for this. You know, you I've watched you in different interviews. And you've also you've often said that people don't have a drinking problem. They have a thinking problem. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, well, the first thing, first of all, is I'm going to tell you how I come to that conclusion. Then I'll tell you about the research I have. So I stood outside many years ago in Manchester, England, outside a liquor store slash news agent at uh, five o'clock in the morning. He's not supposed to open till seven and he can't serve alcohol until 10. It's snowing. I'm stood there in a vest, a pair of shorts and a pair of flip-flops and I'm sweating profusely. My banging headache and trembling I know I'm going to go into DTs unless I get some alcohol in my body. So the guy knows me. He knows that I'm, I'm really you know, suffering. So he's the door early, lets me in. I put my 10 pound on the counter, shaking, oh, crazy shaking and sweating. He put the bottle of vodka on the counter and I grabbed the handle and this was my reaction. Oh, headaches went, shivering stopped. I was in a great mood. Sweating stuff, and I realized looking at the shopkeeper, the back of the bottle, back at the shopkeeper, back at the bottle, and I thought, Oh my god, it's not the drink. So then I started to research what was that feeling around the alcohol, and we found that relapse happens way before the bottle comes into play. So it's all about self sabotaging neural pathways, is what I say. I have a predisposition, uh, predisposition with alcohol. My family's got it. My grandparents have got it. If you're an alcoholic and you want to trace back, just look at your, your family tree. And uh, it may skip a generation, but it's there. You know, it's a predisposition. I'm born with the alcoholic brain. Now, if I never drink, them guys are usually the guys like running Google, running Apple, you know, running Amazon. The million-dollar minds would you. But as soon as alcohol is introduced... Then we start self-sabotaging. We have trauma in our past, of course, because we hear things slightly different to other people with the alcoholic brain because it's on sabotaging mode. So that's what the idea come across. So if it's not the alcohol, because that's the symptom, well, what's the problem? It's in my brain. I have a brain disease. My brain is dysfunctional. It's self-sabotaging. And it's different to the guy next door to me because I have that mental obsession yeah, you talked about how you know if it's if the alcohol is not involved, they become millionaires. They become you know CEOs and and top founders. What specifically is going on in the brain? Like what's being lit up that uh, where that energy is being diverted into something constructive versus something destructive? Well, when we start to stop self-sabotage in the whole world, this is what happens with blinkers. As soon as we stop it, off, and, our, and our, our whole life changes because we, we think we're not good enough, we're never going to fit in, we're never going to amount to anything. When the alcohol stops and the redirection of good neural pathways happen, we start to get excited about life. 
that they want to live now. They want to get up in the morning. And what seems to happen, this is six and a half thousand patients and almost 30 years down the line that I'm doing this, is uh, the focus is then on things around us, focus on business, focus on family. Uh, most people go back to the gym. Most people, although it's not recommended, come off certain medications. I mean, they just have this ambition for life that they've never had before. And it's beautiful to watch. And, it's, and, it, and it never fails. You know, do A and B and C will follow when it comes to their head. So you can actually look at self-sabotaging neural pathways when you get better. And you can look at uh, health in neural pathways. And there's a time frame between, because when we get well, we have a choice. There's a 7.3 time frame, 7.3 seconds, that we can actually snap a band and redirect. We have a choice then. But while we're using and drinking, there's no choice. And that's what that's why people go on to succeed about life. I love that you've broken it down into uh, seconds, 7.3 seconds, because I think a lot of people think that they have to meditate for hours to be enlightened or to find stillness. And, you know, when we study emotions, we, we find that different emotions uh, last for different amounts of time. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is that that pull for the alcohol or for the drug is it's a small window of 7.3 seconds. And I, yes, and again, a couple of reasons. First of all, we reached about 500 people to get to that time frame. But some were five, five seconds, some were eight seconds before they made that decision. So we come up with this, like, I don't know, 7.3 sounds quite attractive to me. So we came up with that. So what we said, what we tell uh, uh, alcoholics and addicts is, look, you can do anything for 7.3 seconds, and that seems to stick. Now, whether that's true or not, in their head, when they snap the band and count to 7.3 seconds, the self-sabotage in your pathway has been redirected, and you're onto a brand new life and start your day all over again. That seems to be the trend over the last 30 years of people coming us this is why we have a 97 percent success rate because it, it's not about the alcohol stop talking about the alcohol guys you know it's the trauma it's the childhood and it's self-sabotage it could be anything it just happens with my brain reacts differently to alcohol than anybody else's you not to drugs leo i have to tell you that not drugs are slightly different alcohol in the brain as a chemical in that mixes with my chemical in the brain and automatically wants to self-destruct now, that doesn't happen with drugs with me. I have to take the drugs over a period of time and then like them, then become addicted to them. With alcohol, the first drink, it's all off if you're an alcoholic. And that's what we have to teach our kids today is if, you have, if, you, if you're an alcoholic and there's alcoholism in the family, when your kid gets to about eight or nine, you need to be having that sit-down conversation with them to tell them to be careful because I've seen it time and time again. And so, you know, you talked about sit down with your kid about eight or nine. Are there early symptoms? You, you talked about it being uh, genetic and, and, and partly, you know, inherited and there's a family history of it. At eight or nine, how, what, what, how do you have that conversation with your child? What, what do you say? What are you looking out for? What systems do you put in place to help them become well, a millionaire versus uh, an alcoholic? Yeah. Look, remember when we were kids, and we, we was playing in the yard or garden. Uh, what do you want to be, Johnny? I want to be an astronaut. What do you want to be? I want to be a fireman. What happened to them dreams? I'll tell you. They got kicked out by our family and by society. So when dreams of fun, you know? When I was nine, I took my first drink on stage, Liverpool, 
United Kingdom. Nine. When I took that first drink, it was different to anybody else's. I asked friends. What, 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 I took my first sip at nine. I said, what was it like? Oh, it's disgusting. I spat it out. Not with me. So there's a sign straight away. And I'm not saying there's any signs around nine or 10. I'm saying we have to sit down and say, hey, you know, alcohol is in the family. And nine-year-olds now are more mature than they've ever been. And even though it's young, we can have that conversation of, you know, grandfather had a disease called alcoholism and it runs in the family. So as they get into their teens, keep warning them that, you know, if you like alcohol, be very responsible with it. And if it seems to get out of hand. And most parents I speak to with, with young children, they don't even drink. The kids don't even touch alcohol because the wreckage they've seen the parents go through. So it's a real nice conversation. It's an intelligent but funny conversation. But as long as you plant that seed around alcohol, you have to be real careful. You mentioned uh, it's a it's a mix of trauma, uh, you know, uh, genetics, and then also sabotage. Uh, if you don't mind sharing, what trauma did you experience as a child that contributed to the alcoholism? My, my, everybody who's an alcoholic has trauma. Everybody has trauma. So we have to look at that trauma and find out what it was. With me, it was my parents screaming at me. And I want to go back to that because it's a very interesting point. It's me, not the, the poor family I came from. It's me not having uh, been able to go to a school trip that cost like 20 cents to the local park to camp overnight. I couldn't afford. Yet my mom and dad could afford to go to the bar every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night. And it's all stuff like that. As I saw mom and dad argue, I saw my mom was, you know, uh, loves alcohol. And I saw my, you know, both that were, and it was this trauma. Now, how do we look at trauma as an alcoholic? So this is awesome. I hear things differently. I take things too personally. So if you say to me and a friend next to me who's an alcoholic, oh, you don't look as great today. My friend might say, Leo, you don't look as great too. You both laugh. When you say that to me, it hurts me. I go home and I'm in a down, desperate mood all day. So we need to look at. So me and my brother, for instance, are stood on the dining room table. And my mom walks in and she says to my brother, who has the normal brain, get down off that table, you stupid idiot. Get down. That's what he hears because that's what she said. This is what I hear. Get out of that table, you stupid idiot. And there's the trauma. It's, it's so uh, fascinating you mention that because even in uh, research with suicide, they say that, you know, people who are depressed or have a suicidal brain take um, perceived uh, neutral expressions as uh, expressions of disgust or anger towards them versus taking it as a neutral expression. And looking back, I, I saw that in myself as a kid, always uh, taking my mom's neutral expression as one of anger or disappointment or frustration and never just thinking, oh, she probably had a long day or a bad day. It was, uh, she's about to yell at us or she's upset with us or what did I do wrong? So that, you know, that one of the four agreements, the first one is don't take things personally. And so how does a person not, if, you, if you're aware of it, right? The first step is awareness that you take things personally. What's the second step? Because it's easy to say that, but how do you not take things personally? Oh, it's, it's, it takes time for the alcoholic. I spoke somewhere only five years ago, Leo, in California, huge meeting. It was a fire regulations. They clicked a thousand people through the door. So I knew there's a thousand people there. At the end of the meeting, after I spoke, it was... 
It was customary because they said, make one or two hours free after you speak because everyone wants to come up and shake your hand. And they did. Amazing job. Fantastic. One guy says that you were terrible. You cursed a lot. I don't like you. Have a guess who I concentrated on for the next six months. The guy. So it's real hard to come out of that, you know. But what we have to do is the definition of insanity is not being able to see your own truth. Okay, that's the clinical side. Not being able to see your own truth. We don't see that. So what I did is I surrounded myself with people who kept me accountable but told me good things all the time. I surrounded myself with people who believed in me and always lifted me up and didn't put me down. I surrounded myself. You know, if I'm always saying to people, if you're on $40,000 a year and you want to earn 80, start hanging around with the guys that earn 80. So I hung around with people who'd recovered from the disease, but had all these traits that they recovered. And I'd learn off them guys. And again, don't take life too personal, anything too personally. It's amazing. And as you go along and gain the confidence and start speaking and and, uh, performing or teaching, whatever you're doing, and you get the reaction from others, that's where we give our confidence from. Because we, we can't be our own yardstick. It's impossible. And this is what I fall into, and maybe yourself, Leo, and I'm sure loads of people watching this is, I was walking past the kitchen one day at work and I heard one therapist say to the other who's just started there, oh my God, did you see Dr. Kelly with that guy this morning? He came in, he was suicidal. He was crying when he walked in. An hour later, he's skipping out laughing, saying hi to everybody. And the other girl said, yeah, that's what he does. And she said, oh my God, that's just breathtaking. So the therapist said to the trainee, have you told Dr. Kelly that? Oh, no, no. He already knows. No, I'm not going to tell. We don't know. Okay, we don't know. Stop thinking we know. We don't. The only thing why we take pride in what we do is because people tell us the good. So tell people. Compliment that guy who's working with you. Say nice things to that doctor who's working with you. Thank you, trainer. Personally, thank you. And when we say thank you to somebody, dopamine's released into my brain. I love it. But guys, we don't know. So anybody that's made a difference in your life, whether it be a sponsor or a teacher, you've got to keep thanking them, guys. You are amazing. You know, if I tell you a lie often enough, you're going to believe it. But if I tell you a lie real often enough, I'm going to start to believe it. Psychology 101, you know, what we see is how we feel. The latest brain spotting, which I'm a uh, counselor in, it's like what we see is how we feel. What we hear is how we feel. So not only do we have to surround ourselves with people that are the right people for us, We can't take any negativity in. So over the period of years, we kind of lose that one comment ruining our life. So today, you can't upset me without my permission. And I'm not giving you my permission today. And you see everyone out there, every single day I walk out of my house to mix with other people, everyone's selling resentments, Leo. I ain't buying today. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. So you have the energy of a guy who stays off the news cycle because, you know, they like to write those titles in first person, you know, like, uh, I'm so destroyed. My life is over. Uh, you know, you know, cause I know your part of your treatment is in neurolinguistic programming and I see it in, in media titles. What do you do to protect your, your brain and your thoughts? Because I would assume that, um, you're, you're highly empathic. And so things like news, music, TV shows may, may affect how you feel about you. 100%. First of all, I like deprivation. If, if it's raining in uh, Texas, we turn all the lights in the house. That can affect my mood. I have to be careful what I watch and what I see. Everybody does. 
If you, you know, if you sat at home worrying about everything, do me a favor, for the next month, switch your TV off. 90% of the problems are gone. You know, look at what's around you. How many times have you seen the grass outside? But what I do is I don't read it. I've never watched my videos. I've never watched me on TV. I've never read my book. I've never seen anything podcast that I've done. I just don't go into it. This is me. This is what I do. You either like me or you don't. And guess what? If you don't, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm still going to do what I do. You see, I used to listen and read to them haters, Leo, and it would destroy me. How can I do it better? Listen, you either love me for what I am or you want to be me. Let's get it out there. Either one's good. I can help you with either one. Don't start sending me negative comments because you're sat at home in your mom's bedroom with nothing to do because you're a loser. Don't want to hear it. I stay away from that. Do something. Get out of that bedroom. Knock on the guy's next door who's 95 and ask him, can you go to the store for him? Go and do that and then come back and see if you can send the same comment to me. You can't. Because once you start working with other people, we start getting pride. We start getting a useful life and we make somebody's day. Do you know how amazing it is when people come for our program for 90 days and they walk away recovered from that horrible crap they went through, you know, it's unbelievable that the joy in the parents' eyes when they get the kid back, you know, the crying, the, the cars, the offering to buy me Porsches and houses. And it's not why I'm in this deal. A fair price for what we do because we do it good. I don't want anything else. What I want is your kid to have an amazing life. What I want is your husband to get that CEO job, job back again. That's what I want. I'm paid in full, you know? My life is loving everybody. If you don't love me back, God bless you. That's your choice. See you around. And that's the way I live life today. Tell me about this snapping of the band. And, you know, because I know there's a lot of somatic work that you do as part of your recovery process. Um, this, tell me about the snapping of the band and how that plays into changing our neural pathways and then any other somatic techniques that you may incorporate. So the snapping of the band is to reset neural pathways and to snap the central nervous system, give it a jolt. During that jolt is usually the 7.3 seconds we talk about where we can relax and take it easy and take a different route of thinking. And that's exactly what it is. We can't, we can't leave out the body when it comes to alcoholism. See, what I have is I have this compulsion in my head that I can drink and I can drink successfully. I have an obsession. I will obsess about it. I will try different ways about it. As soon as I take that drink into my system, I am allergic to alcohol. My body is sick from after the first day, I need alcohol to survive. So once we get clean and clear of that, it's back down to our own thought patterns that we can control. 10 years ago, uh, the medical fraternity, we all decided that, hey, look at this, we can actually change, change the way the brain thinks. It's like plastic, hence the name neuroplasticity. And that's what we can do on every occasion. We only know a, mi a minuscule of the brain right now regarding alcoholism. There's still a lot more work. But when you snap the central service system, it snaps out of that neural pathway of self-sabotage. Because what I do every day, I got people to watch their self-dialogue. You see, Leo, I used to speak to myself worse than I spoke to my worst enemies. When I dropped a pen on the floor, I was a stupid idiot. No, I'm not. I just dropped a pen on the floor. And people don't think this matters. This matters more than you can even imagine. So let me tell you how powerful, because we've got the elastic band, we've got the thoughts, and we've got the self-dialogue. Let me tell you how powerful words can be. I was in practice one day and was just finished with John T. And uh, I thanked him, shook hands, and he went on. My secretary came through the door and said, Dr. Rob, uh, I've got some bad news. John T's uh, father's just died in a horrific accident on the freeway. I'm like, oh, my God. 
So I called him up, Leo, and I was there trying to explain to him what I had to pull over the road. He was shaking. He was crying. Oh, sobbing and screaming and crying. And he wet himself and he got out of the car and he was shivering wreck on the side of the road. While I'm discussing this with him, my assistant burst through the door and she said, Dr. Rob, we've got the wrong John. It's John C, not John T, whose father's died. So I said, get over John C. Now I'm going to call John back. And I called him back, talked to him around. All of a sudden, now he could drive, go home. I put the phone down, Leo, and I thought to myself, I just changed that whole man's physics and being and biology with a few words that I said to him. I changed the whole way he feels. What if I did that with good words? So then I researched about words itself, and I found this Japanese scientist over in Japan got two bodies of water, and on the one, they played horrible music, you know, really loud language, bad. And, and then the other one, they played Mozart. And then they were, six or seven would go in this room and they would curse for an hour at this water. And in the others, they will read poetry to them. After a month, there was a difference between the two waters. One of them was destroyed and you couldn't drink anymore. The other one was amazing. It's like it's been sieved and come from a mountain. So what we tell ourselves then is how we're 90% water, 80% water. What am I saying to myself that's making my water undrinkable? How can I feed somebody's soul and myself? Because that's what addiction is all about, really. If alcohol and drugs are the symptom, what's the problem? We need to get out of ourselves, redirect neural pathways, calm the central nervous system down, and watch what we watch, watch what we eat, and watch our friends around us. You know, everybody, Leo, like I was talking before, I want to be at Austin. Everybody's born with a million-dollar mind. And what happens is society kicks it out of us. Our family kicks it out of us. If you've recovered from alcoholism, you have a million-dollar mind. Stop hanging around 10-cent minds. Please stop hanging around them, guys, because there's only one, two things going to happen. They're going to come to your level or you're going to go down to theirs. And there's a good chance of you going down. So we have to inspire people. We have to excite people. We have to, you know, learn out, learn the craft. That's what I need to do. Learn everything there is to know. I went back for a second PhD at Southampton University for behavioral science because we can't leave the body and the actions and the giveaway signs that when I'm talking to patients, it's like I know my craft. I know how to turn this around. And it's amazing of the small stuff that happens that we don't know. You see, alcohol will never come to me, Leo, on a Monday and go, hey, Rob, let's have a drink today. It doesn't work like that. You see, a week later, or before, surely, a week before when I'm sat in the office looking at this girl using a stupid Christmas pen that her mum bought her, and it's now July, and I hate her for doing that, there's my relapse. When I'm irritable, when I can't stand people around me, when people annoy me when they call me at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because they know I finish at 2, that's my relapse. When I've got bad words to say to people instead of lifting somebody up, that's my relapse. So by the time it gets to picking the drink up, it's too late, guys. It's too late. You know, the damage is already done because it's not the alcohol, it's your behavior, your thought patterns, your psyche. The whole deal has destroyed itself once again. And unless you redirect, have a guess what? You're going to go into the same situation. I, <coughs> I'll tell you something else, Leo. Listen, so <coughs> let me describe alcoholism to you in, in ways we can all understand. So many years ago in England, there was a girl, 17 years old, pretty blonde. She was snatched off the side of the road into a car and she disappeared. There was a huge manhunt, Leo, 
Every person in that area came to work, worked overtime. They couldn't find her. In the end, she was down as dead or missing. Seven or eight months later, a policeman's driving on the car behind another car, and his indicator, his signal light was broken. So he pulled them over. And in England, you don't need any warrants for houses and cars. So he searched his car. He found a stolen screwdriver with no receipt. So he took him back to his house to see what else he had stolen. They went through the house, saw little bits and bobs, but all of a sudden in the corner, they seen this like chest wooden box. It was about six, seven foot long and about four foot high. So they said to him, what's in the box? Oh, no, no, nothing, no, no. So they think there's loads of stolen stuff. So they smashed the lock up and they open it and there was the girl. She'd been abused every day and he put her back in the box and he used to do this every single day for seven months, okay? So when they opened the box, she was alive. She was crying, she was alive. So the policewoman leant over and held her by the arm and helped to step out the box. She took a police coat off and she wrapped it around this poor girl. Leo, what's the first thing that she did? Provided uh, safety or coverage. She got back in the box. The girl got back in the box. Wow. She doesn't know any different. And that's how our mindset that's how prisoners go insane. You know, she got back in the box, Leo, where she's been abused every day and starved almost to death. That's, in, that's incredible, but it makes me think that that's what we do with alcoholism and addiction. We get back in the box every time. Get out the box, guys. Burn the box. Smash that box up and go in another direction. Because if you, the brain's used to something, it's very hard to change unless you really, really want to change. Because the box was her comfort blanket. The alcohol was my comfort blanket. And when it's going gets rough, unless neural pathways change, I'm always going to run back to that comfort blanket. So we throw the comfort blanket away. We throw the box away. And we learn to live life on life's terms. And we're powerful and we lead by exam. Everyone loves leaders. Everyone needs leaders in the community. See, them million-dollar mind brains that are born alcoholic, once we clear it, you're back to a million-dollar mind. There is nothing... You can. We've worked with some of the biggest film stars, uh, footballers, musicians in the world. They've came to us broken. Uh, record deals been cancelled. Films been cancelled. Ended up in jail. We brought them back, and we and we and we did what we did in the box. We we spent three months convincing them guys that they're going to be the biggest movie stars again. We convinced them every day. We ordered Porsches and Bentleys to drive around in. We went back to their multi-million dollar houses and we walked around them. And two weeks later, this guy had been released from me. He, went, he made a film, which a year later became the number one box office seller in the world. This is what it's about. All people wanted to get excited about life. And there's nobody there to show them because nobody knows what they don't know. You talked about relapses happened when, you know, we're a little bit irritable, uh, minor annoyances. When we notice that, is there, uh, what's our next step? Do we take a breath? Do we, do we sit with ourselves for 7.3 seconds? How do we, how do we create space? Because we're not always aware of what's going to trigger an annoyance or an irritation. Uh, what are we doing in that moment? Do we snap the band? What, what's happening? Now, this is after you come into treatment with us. So you've been going a week or two weeks and the thought patterns come, a relapse port, 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 uh, comes. So we pause, we snap the band, we pause for a second and we concentrate on our breathing up until 15 seconds, in through the mouth, in nose and out through the mouth. 
Then we focused, and then we start our day right there and then. And I say it out loud, Leo. Okay, okay, God, I'm starting my day now. And that might be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So when you've got some basic information of what your brain's playing with you, because let's look at the hypothalamus on the alcoholic. The hypothalamus is a fight or flight part of the brain. So it tells normal people to run, to also tied to the amygdala, to run or to stay, to eat food and drink water. That's why we never have to teach a newborn to, to eat because it's already got its finger down its mouth because it's hungry. It's just a normal, that's the hypothalamus playing that part. You know what it tells the alcoholic? It tells it to drink alcohol. That's why alcoholics can go days and week without eating or drinking. You know, that, that's just the way it is. So we're fighting against our brain in the early days. But with that information alone, because information is very powerful in my game, with that information alone, you're armed with the facts about your disease. Because I used to ask people inside 12-step rooms and outside, what's an alcoholic? And everybody said the same thing. It's a guy who drinks too much alcohol. It's got nothing to do with alcohol. It's got 1% out of 100 to do with alcohol. But that's what people think. You see, if I could just stop drinking, surely I'd be a better man. No, I wouldn't. There has to be a change inside me. So when I have that spiritual awakening that I must have and that psychic change, change in neural pathways, my DNA changes. Why is that important, you might say? Because the 12-step book that I read says the same man will drink again. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And that was my research about the DNA. It's ever so slight, but I'm not the same guy anymore. And neither are my patients, the different people. And I truly think this is what's missing in, in the treatment industry is we're taking people into treatment for fourth and fifth time, teaching the same stuff they did on the first time and expecting not to relapse. And that's ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And, and we found out some, you know, guys in Florida and playing the insurance companies. This needs to stop, guys. We need to out these people because what you're doing, taking Johnny in for your fourth time in the same treatment center, costing him $30,000 a time. What are you doing? Where's your buy-in? I'm the only person in the world, Leo, that offers a money-back guarantee if you don't stay sober and have an amazing life. I'll wait a minute. Just let me wait and see if there's anybody else doing that. No, I didn't think so. Come on, guys. We can do better than this. People are dying on a daily basis. And what we're doing, we're looking at the cash register Looking at how many guys our salespeople got in that week. Really? You need to close that down, buddy, and buy a car dealership. That's what you need to do. Stay out of our industry if you're not in it for the right reason. Sick of people like that. This is about me, the patient, God, and a great way of life. Put the families back together like we do. Work with the wife. Work with the kids. Get that family unit strong again. Get them sit around at dinner time all together, sharing jokes and what their day was like. Let's get back to the old days. Let's get back to families loving families. COVID was the greatest thing that happened to me in this industry because out my window here, there's a beautiful walkway and I saw families walking, Leo, with dogs and babies and it was a beautiful sign. We need to take something from this COVID and learn from it that, I, that a, a phone is not your life. Tied to an iPad, tied to a phone. You've seen, oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, no, your husband's trying to talk to you about your love and you're looking about the latest thing on Facebook? Don't you see how tied you are to Facebook? That Facebook rules your life? We did research about two years ago. 98% of people with iPhones check their Facebook page before they get out of bed. And I'm one of those. How crazy is that? Not turning over and kissing the wife that stood by you through all this deal that you've been going through, not saying thank you, 
not looking if the babies see if they're ugly. You check your Facebook. That's an addiction. You need to look at that if you want to better our lives. I love that. I love your passion, Dr. Kelly. However, when you do hit the desk, uh, it picks up on the microphone. So I want people to hear everything that you're saying. I'm going to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, one of the things I want to drill down on is it's to go back to the trauma, because I think what happens is, and I've talked to so many people who diminish their trauma, they, they feel like there's a hierarchy of trauma. Well, you know, what I went through wasn't that bad. Uh, compared to you know other stories that I've heard, so it's not a big deal. I you know I, I don't need any help. That that person over there really needs a lot of help. What do you say to that to, to people who um, don't r- realize that trauma is trauma, no matter how you perceive it? And how are we, how do we define trauma? How are you defining trauma? Well, we got to look. I mean, most uh, uh, therapists call it small T's and large T's. And I'm not a great lover of that because of the alcoholic brain is different. Everything's trauma to the highest extent. No car crashes, plane crashes, things that happen in the house. So the alcoholic brain with alcoholic parents who are drinking and fighting every night do not know the difference between war in Iraq and war in the living room of the house. And I say that with no disrespect to our soldiers over there and just talk about the mindset. The kids and the guys and the husbands and the wives never know when it's going to kick up. Never know whether they'll get this out of their lives. They're walking on eggshells all day, and anything could start at any time. The central nervous system acts the same way. When you see your, your, your brother getting beat up by your dad because he's so wasted, he doesn't know what day it is, it's the same thing. So when we look at this trauma, it can be as little as not being able to go on the, on the school trip if you have the alcoholic brain in the family. It could be as little as not parents can't give you in what's love because they're all working 12 hours a day each. That's trauma for the kid. You know, we have to really look at what trauma is. And like I say, with the alcoholic addicted brain, there's no such thing as small and big T's. They're all big T's. They're all big trauma. And so the first thing we do, obviously, is we go in denial. Well, I've never had any trauma. I can't think of any trauma. Really? Let me take you back and let's talk about years two to seven. And then it starts. Oh, I remember the mom locking me in the, in the, in the, in the cupboard once for like six hours. <laughs> that was okay. Stop. That's trauma. And that's trauma that can go on later to kill you. We have to look at that. We call it going back to the scene of the crime. Let's go back to the scene of the crime. Let's clear all that up. Every alcoholic has trauma. We have to clear that stuff up. Then we need to bring him into the future. And when he start rebuilding because it's like we call it rebirth, reborn. There's always pain before a birth. Ask any woman that. There's always pain before a birth. It's the same thing on this journey, guys. If you're going through some stuff now and listening to it, and you're a real alcoholic, you're doing this for a reason. Someone's putting you through this terrible stuff you're going through. Like me, I was homeless for 14 months. I stabbed my wife three times one night because she wouldn't let me finish drinking. I left my kids in a cinema because I forgot they were there while I went for alcohol. See, these are the things that I've gone through. So I speak from experience. 14 months on the streets. That's trauma. That's huge trauma. I'm still dealing with that today. I have a therapist I see about that. You see, because I have a walk and lost my kids. Never seen the youngest one, age one. She must be nearly 30 now. Never seen her. She wants nothing to do with me. My eldest one contacts me three years ago on Facebook. And we have a great relationship. And we go over there two or three times a year. And it's amazing. But it's trauma. The times when the guy next to me when I woke up been stabbed to death for his sneakers. 
and I had, had on the same sneakers, but I wasn't killed. I've just got away with it. That's trauma that I still work on. People don't realize that. Oh, you're awesome, Dr. Rob. You're amazing, Dr. Rob. I have my own demons like you do. It's just I can get you out of where you are. Are you going to have to see someone for the rest of their life? Probably. I know I do. Just to chat and, and, and talk, you know, shoot the breeze or anything like that. It's phenomenal, but, man, you've got to be careful. It's the one, without alcohol, it's the one misunderstood disease in the world. And so is trauma as, as a case study. It's worse than anything else because if we hold all that trauma down, what happens is the body gets sick and that's where cancer starts to sprout up. Do you have a morning routine, um, you know, something to prep your mind, prep you for the day, uh, to get in your body, to, to, to uh, you know, be ready to cope with any irrit irritants or annoyances? Oh, yes. I'm glad you asked me that. Every single day when I get up, I call, I do what's called a mirror work. It's when I look in my, uh, look in my bedroom mirror and I say, I love you 10 times. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm replenishing the, the subconscious brain because my subconscious brain wants to kill me and make it all like an accident. So I'm giving you I love you every day, not anything else, just I love you, and it stores up. And when that comes to the prefrontal cortex, it's just before asking that girl out or just before buying that house or car or job. You know, so I store that in my brain every morning. I do a lot of breathing work. I write down my resentments from the night before on paper. And I make sure I compliment three people every day. I make sure that I'm kind and courteous towards all people that I come. Whether you're alcoholic or not, I might be the only face you see of human being today. So when you walk away from me, you're going to be walking away with a smile on your face every single time. And if you don't, I've done something wrong. I need to look at that. So it's all about helping others for me today. So that's my morning routine. How can I be of service to God and my community? Like we give out, thousands of money dollars each year to one parent families in recovery with children who just want that second chance. We buy people small cars, pay the rent for 12 months. We just kind to everyone else. This isn't my money. It's God's money. It doesn't matter where it is. A wise man once told me that you'll never go broke by giving away. And it's true, you know, so help others get out of self, snap that band. I love yous in the morning and, and say this in the mirror today is going to be an amazing day. I, I, I would put my life on this. I've never seen a guy not have an amazing day when they say that because you're prepping the brain for an amazing day. You see, what happened to me, Leo, is I used to say, oh, oh, it's six o'clock. What a terrible day I've had. And my other guy who's a physician would lean over and go, hey, Rob, was it really a bad day or was it five minutes that you strung on all day? And it was usually for five minutes. And that's when we snapped the band refocus and start the day all over again and that's the little things it just it's the smallest things in the world leo that help me the most and other people is the things you miss you know the dog coming snuggling in the morning putting his cold wet nose on your face and waking you up instead of brushing him off that's a gift you get up out of a dry bed in the morning your wife kisses you that's a gift you get up out of a bed in the morning that's a gift i slept on a bench for a year that was my dining room my lunchroom, my restroom, and my bed, and my library, all on that same bench. Every single time is where I went to that. I was known as my bench. I fought for that bench. Enough of that. We need to tell our experience and turn it around. Hey, how are you doing today? I love that watch you've got on. Oh, thank you. You've just changed that person's day. I went to, 
was a guy who was uh, three years old in the in the in the in the twelve step program. So we went to buy a cake for him at this supermarket. While we're talking to this guy about the cake because what he's writing on it, this old lady come from behind, and I'm like, "Hey, how you doing?" And she says, "I'm doing good. I'm going to this really nice banter between us. If I was 20 years younger, and you know all that stuff, it was just it was funny. Anyway, we went. We came back the next day to pick up the cake with all the writing on it. And while we were talking to the manager, this old lady come back again. She must be 80, 70, 80. And she says, hey, you, can I have a word with you? Of course, my alcoholic brain went, oh, my God, what have I done wrong? But she pulled me to one side, Leo, and this is what she said to me. She says, I want to thank you for yesterday. I'm like, what? What do we do? You know, the laugh we had? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, of course. No, why? She said, listen, my husband died six months ago. And I've never been able to come back to work until yesterday. I've never been able to walk out the house until yesterday. And you were the first client we saw when we come out. And you changed my day from that laughing and joking. And I want to thank you. And my husband, did, my dead husband, said thank you for bringing me up and making me know about life and how fun it can be. I had no idea, Leo. I'd have gone for the rest of my life not knowing that. So who else do we affect around us that we don't know? If you can't say anything positive, shut up, guys. Nobody wants to hear it. You know, lift somebody up. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I love that. And a lot of people who, you know, are struggling with uh, recovery and, and coming back, uh, I, I know it's like a lot of, like, at least for me, you know, for me, it's sugar. I, I, have, I, have, I have to beware <laughs> of my late night binges. What mm. do you do? on the nights where uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and feel like you can't go back to sleep? Do you have those nights where you're waking up between like one and three? And mm. how do you use that time? And how do you think about and reframe that time? Well, you got to remember, I'm not a religious guy. <clears throat> However, I'm a spiritual guy. So there's 20, 2,600 gods, just pick one, is what I tell all the guys. <clears throat> I've been woken up at that time for a reason. And it's to listen. And it's to meditate and see what God wants for me today, that day. And when you listen really carefully, you start to hear stuff that comes into fruition. You see, every day is working for us. Every day, the sands around you. Every single time. So this girl come to us a couple of months ago. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything, blah, blah, blah. I said, hey, let's, let's think of something crazy. If you saw a life-size panda in the next Two or three weeks. Would you believe in God or some God? 2,600, just pick one. Yeah, of course it would. It'd be a sign. Okay. Somewhere, somehow on the internet, because she was searching me, I'm sat out, I'm stood next to a life-size panda outside a Chinese restaurant, and it hits her right in the face. These are the things happening every day that we don't notice. So, so start looking for them signs around you. There's lots of birds, feathers, you know, incidents. You, what you think is just, oh, it's just, a you know, just... Just ha no, think about it. Think about what's happening around you on a daily basis and try to come aware. So at nighttime when I wake up, that's the stuff I concentrate on. What did I see yesterday? And what did I miss yesterday? Because people will come in front of you for a reason. If you're bumping against that homeless guy and nobody else is on the sidewalk, somebody's put that there. Do something. And my friends always give me a hard time. I'll stop at the signal light. And the guy's there, I give him $10. And they all say, oh, you know what he's going to do with that, don't you? And my reply is, well, good. Good, because that's what I did when I was on the streets. Plus, that's none of my business. My business is to give. What he does with that money, it's de minimis. It's of no concern to me. 
because that's what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to get and help people. And that's what I do. And the next day, I go back to sleep. She's about three o'clock. They call it the witching hour. She's about three o'clock when I wake up for an hour or something. But yeah, take that time for you. That's your time. I, I love that. And a last question, and I ask this of all my guests, because um, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Dr. Kelly? Guys, uh, it's a permanent solution to a part-time problem. You know, you've got to really think this isn't about you. Stop thinking about yourself for a second. Think about the family you're going to destroy after you go. And listen, I really want to tell this. I'm, I'm saying this out of the kindness of my heart and giving back. Call me. I'm going to give you my cell phone number right now. My cell phone number. Not my assistant's. Not my secretary. My phone number. Call me. Call me, guys, if you're in that situation. I want to be here for you. I'm going to tell you right now, if you call me because you're really down, suicidal, anything like that, you're doing me the favor. I'm going to be the one gaining out of this. So listen to this. 214-600-0210. I'm going to say it again. 214-600-0210. It's a direct line for me. If I don't answer, I'm with a patient. Leave a voicemail. I'll call you back because I will change the way you think in five minutes. I guarantee it. And do you know if that doesn't happen, you can come over to San Antonio and pick up my Mercedes McLaren that I will give you the keys for if it doesn't work. And do you know why I can offer that? Because I know my craft, guys. Life is for living. You've been chosen out there. Listen to this. Call me. Let's build this wonderful. I'm not going to sell you anything. The hell am I going to sell you? I just want to talk to you direct you and give you a key to life, man, which is just, you know, everybody used to love my life but me, Leo, you know? And when I really started giving back, look, homelessness to one of the best addiction minds in the modern addiction world? Are you kidding me? TV shows going out to 18 million people? Are you kidding me? Books being sold? The last thing my daughter said to me when they took them off was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. That's what the book's called. Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. All the proceeds, not profits, all the proceeds of that cheap book go back out into communities around the world. Because this is what it's about, man. So if you're struggling, guys, there's always a way. I tried to commit suicide six times, and on two occasions I succeeded and my heart stopped. And somebody saved me on two occasions. Let me be that person that saves you, please. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much. What's your dog's name in the background? Who, who wants to we be have, part? Okay, so my, my wife is American. She has a British car, Land Rover. She has a British husband. We have three English bulldogs. And that outside is Bentley, also known as Benny Beans. We also have Mackenzie, also known as McKK or Princess Peach. And then we have Tobias, who's one, and he's known as Toby. The whack-a-mole is always jumping up on your knee. I, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, tell people where they can find you, where they can reach out to you. I mean, you gave us your phone number already. Are there? Uh, talk to us about the recovery group and how they can reach out. So Rob Kelly Recovery Group is on my platform. So do a search engine, any search engine, Dr. Rob Kelly, and you'll see everything I'm about. I spell my name with two Bs, guys. R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com is the website. Reach out to us. You know, let's talk to, let's talk. Let's give you some advice. Let's make your day. That's where you can find me, guys. Loads of podcasts on there, loads of talks. The book is available from Amazon and Walmart. 
Uh, we'd appreciate if you buy it. But hey, if you can get it free on download, because some of you can get it free. Free stuff's always good. But that's where you can find it, Leo. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Are you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or checking out the Rob Kelly Recovery Group down there uh, is San Antonio, right? Where are you at? Yeah, we have offices in San Antonio, Manchester, United Kingdom. We have offices in Mallorca, in Spain, and Zurich, four offices around the world. I love it. Uh, and you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much, Leo.